0: Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political, and today we're going to go right into another what I hope will be an exciting episode for you, because it certainly is for me, and it's called, Do Women Make the Best Organizers? As some of you know, we've been doing this for for four broadcasts now, and we've been talking about organizing, and so I thought that we should talk about something that has not been talked about that much, and that is the role of women in leadership in the movement. Now, my co-host is Francesca Larson, who is also the producer for these episodes, and she asked me to just say why I wanted to do this episode, and I thought maybe just saying it was enough, but... I got to satisfy Francesca. So I went back and I found a poem. This is a poem I wrote back in 1982. And I think this kind of says it all. Four women in my life. The first is my mother who told me there was no difference between white and colored water in Suffolk, Virginia, and showed me she wasn't afraid to act accordingly. She taught me to be rebellious. The second is Miss Tinsley, who was dragged across the street by two big, burly, redneck cops in Richmond, Virginia, for daring to take the opportunity to eat lunch in the same store she had been spending all her money, all her life. I soon caught up with her, and she taught me the meaning of courage, even in the face of overwhelming odds. The third is Marion Wright Edelman who showed me I could become a lawyer and still be relevant to the cause of oppressed people everywhere, for she soon encouraged me to go to Africa and then helped arrange the first trip. She taught me the importance of skills and the ambitious use thereof. And the fourth is Fannie Lou Hamer, who, when she got old and couldn't fight anymore, she stood up and fought anyhow. She taught me the value of struggle, long-term struggle. And so, women, Black women, if you intend to awaken the spirit of change so necessary in America within your younger sisters, and if you intend to reawaken that same spirit amongst yourselves who have been forgotten, then all the world be better for it, even us men who have been following women all our lives. And that, Francesca, is... All I want to say, I could just turn right off right now, but I want to hear from you all. So for those of us who have been following women, it's very clear how we feel. But I want to do this program because everybody may not feel that way, even some women. And I wanted to see what the experience is, the experiences are of two sets of women. One from my generation, that would be Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons, who I'm going to introduce more properly in a minute, and the other from Megan Douglas, and then the third from our co-host, Francesca, who's going to uh, talk about her experience anyway, so I'm going to include her in that examination. So let me talk first about Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons, and I'm going to call her Zohara, She was one of the few people who had the title and the responsibility of SNCC Field Secretary, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That was a very important title. Everybody didn't get to be a SNCC Field Secretary. Even a lot of the men. I was in SNCC, but I was a volunteer. Certainly had no higher position than that. I volunteered in Montgomery, Alabama, and again in New Jersey. But to be a field secretary, wow. Let me tell you some more about her. She was in school in Spelman College, but when the movement came, when SNCC came, she dropped out, and she went to Laurel, Mississippi. That's where she was assigned to go, and due to... Factors maybe what she will talk about. She ran the Laurel, Mississippi office. After that, she worked for the American Friends Service Committee, traveled to Cambodia, Vietnam, worked in the Middle East for two years, got a, came back and finished college, got a Ph.D. and is now retired professor at the University of Florida So she has a lot of experiences and is still active with the organization that she and I are part of. It's called the National Council of Elders. Our second guest is a young woman from Detroit, Michigan. Can't stay away from Detroit. And her name is Megan Douglas. She is the digital director at For Our Future, Michigan, a progressive nonprofit focused on electoral politics and legislative advocacy. She's the managing editor of Riverwise magazine. And she is a candidate for her doctorate at Wayne State University studying anthropology. So I want to find out what your experiences have been becoming a leader. And that's going to be very helpful, I think, to young people who want to become organizers or who already are organizers to hear from you. And I'm going to turn it back over to Francesca to let her ask the first question.
1: Thank you, Junius. I'm really excited for this conversation today because, first of all, growing up, I learned nothing about women of the movement except for Rosa Parks sitting on the bus as a passive player. So luckily that storyline has changed and my daughter is going to receive a different education than I received, but there are so many other stories that haven't been told. And I know that we're here today, especially having this conversation in black history month, that there are shoulders that we stand on. I want to make sure that we're able to share today is not just the things that we've done and the moments we've overcome and the journeys we've taken, but also how they felt. So, Mm -hmm. my first question to you, Zahara, is how did it feel to be a woman organizing with SNCC?
2: Wow. Well, thank you for the question and thank you. Junius and Francesca, for having me on the podcast. I would like to, if I could, just go back. Uh, Two things. There were other women field secretaries, particularly in Mississippi and Alabama. What I am one of the few women in SNCC was project director and so there were three women project directors in Mississippi during Mississippi Freedom Summer and beyond but there were numerous field secretaries and i must say juniors we were quite proud to wear that title because you know it suggested that you were a bad mamma jamma, okay? So so we were really happy to get that label. But um, talking about standing on the shoulders of giants, I just want to say that I was raised by my grandmother, Rhoda Douglas. I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee in the 40s and 50s. And my grandmother, Rhoda Douglas, was raised by her grandmother, who had been enslaved. And so as a child, working in the huge garden where we grew our food, or taking care of the chickens where we got our eggs and all, or in the house quilting and all the things that my grandmother taught me to do, She told me about my third grandmother, Grandmother Lucy, and the suffering that she underwent as an enslaved person who was blonde and blue eyed because she was fathered by the plantation owner. And his all white children hated her. And so when he gave her, To her all white sister as a wedding present when she was 13, her all white sister tortured her up until emancipation. So, I, unlike many black folk in my age group, did not learn about their enslaved ancestors. And so that laid a tremendous foundation for me. Plus, my grandmother had been able in Memphis, unlike Mississippi, to register to vote. And she did so as soon as women got the right to vote. And she was very proud of her voter registration card and took it very seriously. And with me in tow, knocked on all the doors, begging people to vote. And so this was in the 50s. So when I went to Spelman and learned from the SNCC people that I met that Black people could be killed for trying to register to vote in Mississippi, I was shocked. I mean, I had been brought up under the Jim Crow system and all of its indignities, but at Least black people could vote. They couldn't run for office, but they could vote. So this just blew me away. So, anyway, when I dropped out of school to work for SNCC, I had only intended to be a volunteer for Mississippi summer. And as the first person in my family to finish high school and go to college, And to be under direct orders from my grandmother, do not get involved in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. We are not sending you off to college to do that. You have got to get an education. You are going to be the first in our family. So it was really hard for me to go against what I had promised my grandmother to join. And I tried to just put my toe in and tried my best not to get arrested, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just, I was being drawn in. I mean, you know, little by little. And so by the time I was a sophomore, I knew I had to go to Mississippi and be a summer volunteer and then come back. But fate, didn't have it work out that way. I was supposed to be a freedom school director. And that's what I trained to be. And when I got to Laurel with two other persons, both of whom were men, one of whom was the project director, and he disappeared the first week we were there. Well, we were terrified because The three Mississippi martyrs that everyone knows of, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, had been already missing for three or four weeks, and we knew they were dead. So when our director turned up missing, it just threw us into a tizzy, the two of us who were left. Anyway, Jim Foreman called me from Atlanta to say, you need to become project director we're sending a number of volunteers your way and we have to have a director i said i don't know anything about directing i'm i'm setting up the freedom schools i know you have to keep doing that too but we have to have somebody in charge we will relieve you as soon as we can well i stayed there 18 months and i was never relieved so It was scary. I mean, there was no fun in being in Mississippi in 1964. I didn't even know how to drive. I'd never been behind the wheel of a car. Our family, my family didn't own a car. So when they said, you got to drive, I said, what? They said, you can't survive down here if you don't drive. So I was like, somebody's got to teach me. And we had donated old clunkers. And so there I am in a 1962 Chevy with a stick on the wheel. I burned out two clutches. I mean, I had to teach myself how to drive. And not only that, I had to outrun the Klan in the car. So I didn't have time to bask in accolades or anything. I was trying to stay alive. And they sent 20 volunteers to Laurel over that summer. And I had to find housing for them. And they were all white except for two. And they were arrogant. And, you know, they couldn't believe they could die. And I said, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, you can die down here. These white people will kill you don't make any mistake. Your white skin will not protect you. And so it was a hell of a ride. Thanks.
0: So Megan Douglas, I know you heard that story. Mm-hmm. You just getting started, young lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you don't have to outrun the Klan up there in Detroit. Oh, well, I mean, we're in
3: the birthplace of the Klan up here. Yes, uh-huh.
0: yes, yes. I hope you don't have to outrun them at this point. But let's mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you're doing. And uh, how did you feel when you became the director, the managing director, the managing editor of the Detroit Social Justice magazine, Riverwilds? What are your duties and what are your leadership responsibilities?
3: Well, okay. I guess first I just kind of want to qualify the idea of leadership because I'm always weary of people who label themselves as leaders or who want leadership. So, you know, I, I think more it's, there's a role to fill and I'm filling it and I can't do it without all of the other people around whom I work with who are doing all of this work. I kind of look at myself more as like a a scribe than anything. So I just want to qualify that. And then also I just got to say I'm in Detroit now, but I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I I don't want anybody had no hard feelings because (laughs) she's not from Detroit. So, okay. So I'll say, So I've also kind of lived my life behind a philosophy to also be a little bit too weary of any club, (laughs) you know, that old saying, like, be weary of any club that wants you too bad or anything. So coming to Riverwise, I actually always think of the Bog Center for me in the same way that we're talking about standing on the shoulders of giants and honoring the collective wisdom, especially, I mean, of all the movement people who have come before me, but the women and especially walking into the Boggs Center, it's almost like you're entering a sacred space. And I think it not almost it is a sacred space. You feel Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs spirit in that in that center. And so when I go into that space, I don't necessarily feel as if I'm you know, cause I'll say this, I think, you know, we're in this system where now social justice work has also become profitable and it's real easy to be in a space and say that you're doing this work and really you are, you're doing the work, but at the end of the day, you're, it's in service of a paycheck. And so when I go to the Bog Center, I feel like I'm doing like the spiritual work that fulfills what, you know, I might not necessarily get because I'm not, part of mainstream religion. And so that's kind of my sacred space. So joining with Riverwise and doing that work was really just kind of like, I found a spiritual home for the work that I want to do. And I'll say, I ended up becoming the managing editor, because the man who was there previous to me, Eric, he had a stroke, a devastating stroke last year. And, you know, part of our plan was to kind of help you know piggyback and help each other run it off together and then he had a stroke and everybody kind of looked at me like "Mm." (laughs) I was like okay I guess it's my turn to step up and so I think that also that notion of leadership and all those kinds of things like I don't aspire to be in control And so that's why being at Riverwise has felt so wonderful because it was really the collective around me who said, Hey, we need you to do this. This is what we need from you right now. And you listen to the community. What is your community telling you that they need? And that's what Riverwise needed. But I represent a whole bunch of people who do a whole bunch of work. It's not just me.
1: It's funny that you mentioned that Megan, because some of the work that I have been doing right now is about how do you inspire women to run for office? And so frequently the difference between men and women running for office is that men will say whether they're 18 or 55, that they're ready for the position (laughs) and they're qualified. (laughs) And women are generally waiting to be asked to run and not in a bad way, but echoing what you said, Megan, that they're, they're looking for the community need. That I'm the right person for this community, and there isn't somebody who's sitting at the table already who can fill it. And what's interesting, Zahara, and in listening to your story as well, is it sound like you also filled a need. Oh, yeah. And I'd love to hear more about what was it like to step into whether it was called a position of leadership or not, but how did you get to that point where you you felt like you had a voice? And did you ever get to a point where you felt like you had any power, too?
2: Well, thank you for that question. As I had mentioned, it was really terrifying. But talking about how, in fact, that was even possible to do, Laurel, to my shock, was, didn't have an infrastructure infrastructure. And so when we were assigned there, the three of us, and I failed to mention the name, Lester McKinney, who was the seasoned field secretary who had scouted out Laurel earlier, and he was to have been the project director, but there was no infrastructure. So we had to sleep every night 30 miles south, in a town called Hattiesburg which was quite a movement center there in Mississippi and then we would drive up to Laurel to hang out sort of in beauty shops barber shops to try to see if anybody interested in having a project here we also had the list of names of members of the NAACP. Now that was a secret list because you could be killed. You certainly could lose your job and have your house burned down if people knew you were in the NAACP. So this was a highly secret list. And when we got to town, a lady's name on my list with her address was Mrs. Eberta Spinks. And again, I'm terrified. I mean, I walk to her door. I knock on it. She comes to the door, looks me up and down and says, yes. And I'm trying to figure out how do you ask somebody, can I move in with you? Yes, they may burn your house down. Yes, you may be killed. Yes, if your husband has a job, he's going to lose it. But will you take me in anyway and let me help build a movement here? So I'm stumbling, trying to figure out how in the world do I ask somebody to do that? And, you know, we SNCC people had a uniform. It was blue jeans and a blue jean jacket. And I had on mine. And she said, are you one of those freedom riders? And I was like, yes, ma'am. She said, girl, come on in. I've been waiting on you all my life. I was like, what? And this lady was in her 50s. And I said, oh, my God. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. So when I get in, she offers me to sit down, offers me a Coca-Cola. <laughs> I said, now, what do you need? What do you want? And I went on to tell her who I was, and that I was in Hattiesburg, and there were two other guys knocking on doors across the street. And we were trying to bring the Mississippi Freedom Summer Movement to Laurel. And she said, Well, how, what do you need me to do? I said, Well, first of all, we need somewhere to stay. And she said, Oh, well, you can stay here. I said, Really? She said, Yes. And then I said, Well, there are the two guys with me. She said, Let me call my neighbor she'll put them up. Mrs. Carrie Clayton. I could not believe this. So you're talking about building a movement. That's who built the Laurel movement because Mrs. Spinks was a member of her church. Everybody knew her. She was like, yes, we're going to build a movement here. And as it turned out, her husband worked at the Masonite plant, and he was unionized. So that saved him from being fired. And she sat up every night with a shotgun across her lap. She said, anybody try to come up in here, I'm going to take them out. I mean, so (laughs) this was the beginning of the Laurel movement. And I lived with that lady for 18 months. She put up two other women and the three of us shared a room, two in a bed and one on a cot. So that's how, you know, things got going there in Laurel. And she brought in the ladies from her church and the community who supported us and helped get the movement going and sustained it for the
0: whole time that I was there. See, and listening to what you're saying, and that goes along with my experience in, in several organizations. One I joined when I first came to Newark, and one I formed after I'd been there for a while. The second one was called the Newark Area Planning Association, or NAPA, and we fought urban renewal in Newark. And it wasn't a matter of looking for female leadership to fill certain mm-hmm. roles. It was looking for people to do what had to be done. So, if you could do what had to be done, my position was go ahead and do it. And I think that's the difference now between now in the 2000s and what we see on the ground in terms of what Francesca's doing and what had to be done in 1960s Mississippi and 1960s Newark. So what do do you think about that, Megan?
3: You know, I think when I look around, I do see a lot more representation of women in leadership roles. But I also see a lot of ways, like I'm here in Detroit. So what no organization can say is that there's a lack of black women that they can pull from to hire. So if there's a lack of women in leadership positions, it's not for the lack of women. It's for a lack of intentionality about recognizing when you have talent within your ranks to cultivate. And I think when I speak to Black women around Detroit who I work with, who I've organized with, who I've done things with, you know, one of their greatest frustrations is that, they are busting their humps, you know. And a lot of times, the women that I know who are organizing got into organizing because not because they have free time on their hands, because their kids' school was getting shut down, right? And they knew if they didn't step up to do something, nobody else was gonna because there's lead in the water at the schools, because their water's getting shut off, because there's no street lights on their street. So, on top of like being in those organizations or and being having their blocks really well organized, being able to be that person who could go in. Then they also got to go into these organizations to look at somebody else, tell them that their organizing skills are just at the level to this. We got to bring somebody in from New York or we got to bring somebody in from DC or we got to bring, you know, so there's still that going on. And I think, yeah, I don't necessarily, the only greatest answer that I have is that we just need more intentional, like this space what we understand politics to have become what we understand a lot of organizing to become these days is we know that it can't just be somebody doing it out of the good of their heart. There's gotta be the funds for it. And I think like we have to be able to look at these funders and have a voice and say like, "Hmm," intentionally, like if you are going to start this organization in this space, there just needs to be, like Black women at the helm as well. And I think about it, even in the space right now of Biden saying that he's going to put a Black woman on the Supreme Court and all the black backlash, you know, here's this jerk Ted Cruz saying, well, Black women are only 6% of the population, you know, and it's, um, <laughs> it's really interesting that, uh, like, we're still at the point in which we need to be having the conversation about why it is. That the group of people, and this is no no dissing because I love my brothers and they're out there doing work too, right? So I'm not, I ain't dizzying none of my brothers, but I'm just saying the group of people who literally been birthing, raising, caring for, like standing behind, taking the abuse, keeping silent when they shouldn't be, like doing all of this that we still have to have the conversation about why it is that it's just Black women's time to be in leadership now. Let's see what we could do with it.
1: Yeah.
3: And that's kind of where we're at. You know, I always I always look at people who will be like, why are Black women so angry? And I'm like, why aren't you angry? <laughs> like, my <laughs> anger is a natural response to what is going on in this society. Like, why aren't you? That's unnatural. <laughs> like, how oh, you're behaving. <laughs> so, you know, I appreciate the, opportunities that I've been given so much, like so much. I know that they did not come easy at all. It was a lot of hard fights, like the stuff that my mama and that Zahara, your generation of women had to put up with. For me to even be able to say the kinds of things that I can say in certain spaces these days is sometimes unimaginable. So I'm appreciative for those things, but I I know that really what a lot of it just boils down to is everybody just having to get behind that messaging right now. Like it's just that moment. And, you know, don't be in your feelings about it. (laughs) We're not, we go help. We, you know, they always say, if you help the most vulnerable person in a room, everybody's all right. If you think about the most vulnerable person in the room, everybody else gets equity. So. I think
1: right there, right there with what you were saying, it ties something back to what Sahara said. Because that's what mothers do. And Zahara, what you were describing, and can you say her name one more time? Mrs. Eberta Spinks. Mrs. Eberta Spinks was a mother in that moment. Yes. And movements need mothers. We need somebody to help us feel safe, to build community. And Megan, that goes to exactly what you were saying, that you need you need to take care of the most vulnerable in the room. And that is what a mother does in the space. And you don't have to have kids to be a mother, mm-hmm. but it has been women traditionally who have filled this role.
3: And I just to say, that's the other thing. Black women also don't often get to present in public as vulnerable. So yeah. we also need to just recognize that we are <laughs> <laughs> that we are. We there's a lot of hurt and trauma and sadness going on behind the smiles that you see black women carry every day and the like whatever they're doing at work cuz they always work in the hardest, right? Whatever they're doing there's a lot behind that. And it's also time for black women to get to allowed to be vulnerable.
0: I got a uh a passage here that I want to share with you all and it's directed towards Zahara. And by the way, This is a book that I'm reading from. It's called Hands on the Freedom Plow, Personal Accounts by Women in SNCC. Zahara is smiling. She's not smiling. She's really smiling. (laughs) And the first article in the book is by Zahara Simmons. I said, hmm. Now, I went to the grand opening of this at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. This was before the the big thing opened. This was when they were still having pre-things going on for this. Mm -hmm. And she probably doesn't remember, but I met her there. That's when I met you, Zohara. As a matter of fact, it says, Dear Brother Juniors, this was my autograph, thank you for your long service in the struggle. Gwen Robinson, aka Zohara Simmons. So if you want to read a moving account of all the things that she's, and if you can imagine, this thing is about 700, 800 pages, and none of them are any less exciting and emotionally filled, trauma filled, resolution built than this book, Hands on the Freedom Plow. And there's a number of people on here, friends of mine that I knew before Martha Prescott Noonan, Judy Richardson, those were the two that I knew who were in this book. But one of these passages on page 29, it says, although I was not aware of the concept for many years to come, I now know that I naturally use what some theorists call a feminist style of leadership, which was extremely democratic, sometimes still false. There were a few top-down edicts from me as director. Some of my male co-directors and other projects were noted for their authoritarian leadership styles. As one of the few women project directors in the state of Mississippi, I was particularly sensitive to sexual harassment. One of my few non-negotiable edicts was to disallow all forms of sexual harassment and to declare all underage local women off limits to project males. There would be one warning. Then she goes on to talk about that. Then there's another sentence. Gender relations were difficult to say the least. For many white Mississippi males, this was the thing that galled them the most. Now, I could go on, but I want you to comment on some of that because it will get us into the portion where we need to reveal what were some of the, and what still are, maybe, Megan, the conflicts that you had with male wannabes.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Julius. You know, I wish it were only wannabe males who participated in sexual impropriety, sexual harassment. Some of our leaders, who themselves were tremendous organizers also participated in sexual harassment, sexual abuse of their female comrades. And so, you know, it was really amazing to know that on the one hand, once you had proven yourself as an organizer, you could be respected for that, but... At night or at a party, this other part of them came out and you became a female, a woman. And I won't use some of the terms that come to my mind as to how we were seen as women. And it is a part of the patriarchal, misogynist societies that have existed it seems, for time immemorial. And so our comrades were steeped in sexism. And so they were able to separate it out on the battlefield, so to speak. But when you got home, then you became the object, the sex object. And it was very difficult. And in some cases, you know, Our male comrades were having affairs with two or three women at the same time on the projects. So that, of course, created tensions between the women workers. I mean, the lack of ethical behavior was rampant. And because I had seen it before I got to Mississippi, and it was like, oh, I'm project director? we're not going to have that here. And that was based on my own experiences, certainly way before I got in the movement. I saw just how women were treated by men in my church, in my school. And while I didn't have the language for it that I have now, I didn't understand what it was like. Now, In the case of my grandmother, she didn't take no you know what. And my grandfather was a very mild and gentle person. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to live with her because she also had a shotgun and she would use it. (laughs) So it was like, I grew up with Black women, not only my grandmother, but my aunts. I mean, those women would fight back. It was like, You may beat me up, but I'm going to give you as much as you get. So that's what I had been raised with. So it's sort of interesting how this happened. And so once Women in SNCC did have a meeting, this was right after the end of the Summer Project. And really, this gave rise to the new feminist movement because many of us who attended this all women's meeting were some of the white women who had come down to volunteer as well as the white SNCC workers. And so we began this process that later became a part of the feminist movement, women speaking about our experiences to one another. Now, as project director, I had to fight to get things. I mean, I was sort of last on the list. SNCC was given a fleet of brand new cars. Plymouth, uh, 1964 by the Auto Workers Union. 30, I mean, brand new cars. And like I mentioned, I was driving a 1962 Clunker and I requested one of those cars. And of course, I didn't get one. The guys were going to get the cards. And I often was last to get other resources that I needed. So it not only was sexual harassment, but there was also a diminution of my needs just because I was a woman as a project director, always being at the end of the list to get the requested supplies and things. So, we have to admit that this was the case. Let me just mention that I was one of the founding members of the National Black Independent Political Party in 1980, moving into the Black Power era. And one of the things that we did was that we said women are going to be half of the leadership structure. And to my knowledge, that was the first organization. Black organization that I was in, black or white, where we demanded women are going to be leaders, spokespersons, you name it. And I must say, the men went along with it. And I was so happy to see that we were able to bring them along. So, you know, the feminist movement really took root in that meeting. And then, of course, I have later learned during my research the role that the National Council of Women, Black Women, what's it, NCOW, National Council of Negro Women, which was my job right after SNCC in a project called Project Woman Power. But in 1963, after the march on Washington, women met because they were so mad that no woman was a speaker at the March on Washington. And that meeting gave rise to now. And we don't hear about it. I mean, the genesis of that was black women who then joined with white women to form and Latino women to form the National Organization of Women. We have been pushed out of that history also. So, yeah, the struggle continues. And lastly, you know, I was in the Middle East studying the role of Islamic law on women and meeting with women for two years across the Middle East, where I saw sexism like I had not experienced in the States. I mean, and the women organizing, fighting back against how women have been treated in Islamic cultures.
1: Megan, I, I've been watching you shaking your head in agreement with Sahara. So I'd love to know what's resonating, what feels what feels like it's still happening, what feels like you might have moved moved forward with it. There's just so much rich, rich history there.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I guess when you think about like how we often think of time as like linear. But I often I think of that. There's always kind of like parallel universes going on, and you know, one generation is living out a particular experience, and we might be experiencing a little bit of what they are. But there's new things going on, and I think, even for example, I think one of the things that's made a big difference. So I'm just gonna say, I'm not an elder. I'm not a youngster. I'll call myself a midler, right? And what I really appreciate, the younger kids coming up under me, because I think, you know, a lot of that work that Zahara was talking about that got done in the 80s, you know, I think for like between the 90s and the early 2000s, there was a little bit of a lull. And my generation kind of said, okay, we're going to tuck our heads down and we're going to do work and we're going to try or whatever. And then along came, I think they're Gen Z, like the ones who Really pushed the Me Too movement and the ones who, like, they have broken down this idea of gender pronouns and are really pushing the limits about what we think about gender and how we discuss it in our society. And I think that's been so important because I just also want to contextualize this conversation and saying that I can't just say that men or women have been, you know, because there's a lot of men who have mentored me through my career as. I owe a lot to and where I've got, right, gotten. And so I think what's been really helpful about this breakdown of these dogmatic ideas about men and women is that we can point to behaviors, right? We can say like, you know, you don't have to take on that identity as a person if you don't want. And so if you've chosen that form of toxic masculinity, for example, you're making a choice. Right. And that leads me to say then, too, that, you know, just like they say, all your skin folk and kinfolk, just because somebody identifies as a woman don't mean she got my back in the workplace or in the organizing space. Right. So because we're all a part of this culture. And so even people who a gender identify as she hers will take on that what would be considered a toxic masculine behavior, because I know a lot of men like I know a lot of men in this movement who I feel safe with. Too, because they have taken on a different kind of a way of being in the world. And I, and I don't think we even really necessarily have to essentialize that down to whether or not it's feminine or masculine. I think that's what we call it in this society. And I think that's what a lot of people have been led to believe. But so I'm all here for these younger generations, disrupting everybody's belief systems about what we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it, because they're really challenging people to think outside of the box. And like, why? You don't have to cling to that. We don't have
0: to continue on
3: as a culture steeped in rape and misogyny and sexism. And we don't. Those things are, we're choosing to cling to them now. If that if you're still doing it, you're making that choice. So I think I've been really appreciative for that. and I mean, especially because these youngsters, they're not holding you up either. You say the wrong thing. <laughs> and they're... They're not crying in your office and tucking their tail and running away. Nope, they take everybody out with them. You know, so they got everybody on their P's and Q's. And I love that. I like, I love that.
1: Anyway. Yeah. Megan, one of the things that I love about what you just said is what happens next. So we're getting held accountable. We're getting broken down of what these norms were, what the responsibilities were. And from my perspective, I think one of the things that we need to do better on is valuing some of these skills. So we're identifying that they don't have to be done by women. They don't have to just be done by men, but we're still not at a place where we value the work that was traditionally done by women. So that the moment of creating safety that is so important in a movement, the moments of creating community, that fabric of bringing people together We don't value that the same way we do the person who grabs the microphone and hypes up the crowd.
0: One of the things that I tried to do in my most recent uh, iteration of my interest in passing this on, I had a group called the Abbott Leadership Institute at Rutgers. And something you said, Francesca, is very important because one of the things I teach in those classes is the value of roles. Everybody can't be in every position playing the leadership role. Some people got to do something else. But what they do is just as important. So my number two person, and I'll call her name, Kalina Berryman. Kalina Berryman went on to become the director of ALI after I retired in 2018. But one of the things that she added was just what you said. I was kind of like the person who set the tone. I talked about the civil rights movement. I, I did the history part. I talked about my personal experience, and I talked about some techniques and things like that. But what she did for the organization and why we became a family, well, she looked at the way people were feeling. And she was very much attentive to the way people felt about the things that were going on especially the young people they saw her as a big sister and the kids the, with the kids they saw her even as a mother figure so who's to say my position was more important than her position they're equally important and then there were other people who played other kinds of roles in all the organizations that I had my organization NAPA we had young women who did the freedom school which attracted more people into the office than did us trying to go out knocking on doors. We had people who did security. One of my main security people, Earlene Provitz, she's no longer with us, along with Jerry O'Neill, who was an Olympic boxer. They supplied the security, but they did it equally. Then nobody messed with us because of Jerry and Earlene. So I want to talk a little bit about that. The whole question of the perceived needs some of which have been assigned to women, but some of them, some women have stepped up and done that. And I think that's very important to acknowledge. Anybody want to say something?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know if we were going to be called on. I certainly totally agree with that. When we can understand that every role is important. And, you know, that gets us into how do we nurture one another? How do we love one another? You know, one of the things that when I was growing up, and also what I experienced in the movement, was that many of the people, the people like Mrs. Spinks, Mrs. Carrie Clayton, and the other women that she mobilized and organized to be our support structure, they did it out of love they did not get one penny. And I lived in that lady's house for 18 months and I never paid any rent. What I did do out of my little $10 a week salary was help with the food and to give something toward the utility bill. And she didn't even want to take that. But I said, you know, we're using up heat and lights and all of that, please let us contribute. And so I'm worried about us losing some of that, the love for your community, for your people, and for all people, because these people were deeply religious people who really believed in God and in love and all of that. So In our contemporary times, I'm wondering what do we have to undergird our work and what happens if the love is not there so that you can forgive and still work with people. When they make a mistake, we don't just cancel them. We have got to, I think, reclaim Many of the positive things that we had developed in the Black community out of, you know, both the belief systems that most people embraced and, of course, necessity because we had to rely on one another. We had no choices. And now we're in, you know, when Dr. King said he was not working to integrate us into a burning house. And this society is a burning house, big time, in my view. And so materialism, you know, many of us have embraced the very materialism that Dr. King spoke out against. And many who, you know, want to run for office and other things of that nature, it's for material gain. And we don't need those people in elected office. They're the worst people we could have. Because as you say, Megan, Skin folk are not always kin folk. So we really have to have an ethic of love, of care, of compassion for one another if we're going to survive this country and what it has done to us in the so-called post-integration era. And love and care for one another and our communities we have got to emphasize that in my view. Big facts, big facts.
3: The only thing I was going to add at the end of this, because those are big facts and that's like, <laughs> like let's end out of love. But I also just, you know, since we're talking about, you know, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't just say, kind of piggybacking off of that is also, I think that we have sometimes some, um, because there's like... Maybe like some insecurities and all these kind of like we're, you know lacking some of the like love or like you know those things. A lot of times we feel selfish for advocating for ourselves, and so what I've taken on and what I am very intentional about doing, because as you said, we're in this burning house, right? But you know, it's like until we get out of this burning house, we need a little water to keep us <laughs> surviving as we're doing. Yeah. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is, especially for Black women, where in the most levels of poverty, right? It's like Native women, Latin women, Black women are suffering the most from poverty. When you are doing work with those women and they have an idea, name it. Name who that idea came from, because that's a lot of times what happens is, you know, the idea comes from that. Somebody steals it, runs with it, and you never even know who it came from. So I'm very intentional about ensuring that people know when an idea came from anybody who, you know, they have all these titles. Right. So I'm the director of something or the managing or whatever. But it doesn't matter. I need whoever is supposed to get their credit to get their credit, because that's how I'm going to get my economic security, too, is by people knowing that you did that work and that work needs to be like uplifted.
0: Francesca?
1: I think what Zahara and Megan said are a perfect place for us to wrap up. And I definitely have a lot to reflect on. And there's a couple of things that I know that I'm going to be taking with me about giving voice and making sure that we're reminded of our Black national anthem, which is to lift every voice and just to have that with us and not forget to value love either.
0: And on that note, I want to thank my guests, my co-hosts, for teaching me as well, for lifting me up and helping explain some things that I didn't know about There's one thing that I do know about that Zahara didn't mention. I guess you're going to have to buy that book to find out the answer to that because, you see, she did get that car. Yes. (laughs) She got that new car. I'm telling you all, she got it. And I'm not going to go any further than that. You're going to have to buy the book Hands on the Freedom Plow, personal accounts of... That's because mama's going to make sure we eat.
1: (laughs) Mama's always going to make sure.
0: So on that note, I want to thank you all and we'll see you all next month with another exciting proposition for you to consider involving this whole thing we ended up with, which is called love and attention to helping people on the spiritual side. If you're in a movement, what do you do? How do you do it? What's the best way to do it? And until then, goodbye. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind the scenes content.